Once upon a time, there were two men that were in a hospital room in a big city, and they were both very ill, and the condition of their lives or their illnesses was that they had to be, they, they had to lie flat uh, on their backs, and and uh, the, wind, the, the, the hospital looked out and had a, one big window, and the one man that was next to the window, he was allowed by the nurses to be propped up for one hour per day, and, and he could then there, be, because he was propped up, he could look out the window and see what was out there, and and because of their condition, they had to have silence. They couldn't have a television. They didn't have many visitors. And, and so for that one hour in the afternoon, the other gentleman who had a particular uh, problem had to lay on his back flat all the time, just lived for that one hour. Because the gentleman that was near the window would describe everything that he saw outside. And apparently the window overlooked a park. The hospital looked, overlooked a park. And he would describe uh, things like little sailboats or a, a boy with a puppy or a couple walking arm in arm or whatever it might be. And, and, and it was the only window of life into this man's life who was otherwise just kind of bedridden and in a, in a very sterile environment. And so... One day, uh, after weeks had, of this had passed by, the gentleman that was uh, describing what he saw at the window uh, was describing a parade that was going by, apparently, and around this, this park area. And the man began in the other bed began to think to himself, why is it that he gets the window? And the man began to, to just ponder that, and, and he, he would shove that thought out of his mind, but then it would come rushing back in, you know, why didn't, why come, how come he gets the window, and why is it that I can't? Every, and every time that would come, the thought would, would strike him how unjust this was. One evening, in the middle of the night, the man that was near the window began to cough, and, and congestion began to fill his lungs, and... And he groped to find the button that would bring the nurse running, but instead he couldn't find it. And the man who was alert and conscious in the next bed also had a button in his hand, but instead of pressing it, he just waited and he waited. And finally, the coughing stopped and silence invaded the room. The next morning when the nurse came in, she found the man close to the window had died in the night. And when everything was settled and the the man had been moved out later in the afternoon, the other gentleman asked to be moved to the bed next to the window. And so they complied and they put him there. And then uh, once the nursing staff had left the room, he, he propped himself up on his elbow and he stretched his neck to look out the window and it stared at a blank wall of the building next to him. I don't know if you've heard that story before. And I don't know that it's a true story. But it is a story that pokes us in areas where we can all be weak somehow at different levels. It's a story that somehow touches on the vulnerabilities of our sufferings and how very prone we are that in the midst of our lives that we've been dealt, compare ourselves with others around us and possibly fall into the pit of self-pity or depression or envy or whatever else gathers in the heart. And this morning, as we begin our summer series on the book of James, we open a book of the Bible that is just a few chapters long, the end of the New Testament. And I've I've called this series, Warnings for the Wise. 
And I use that language because only the wise will hear and heed the message of the book of James and the fools will ignore it anyway. So why not speak to the wise? Warnings for the wise. Before we get into the actual first chapter, I'd like to just share some background material that are, I think is quite interesting. Almost everyone agrees that of the five men in the New Testament that have the name James, almost everybody is in agreement that the author of this little epistle is none other than the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He is a man who during the earthly ministry and life of Jesus did not follow Jesus, did not believe Jesus, his half-brother, was the Messiah, the Christ. But after he had been crucified and resurrected and ascended, we read in the scriptures in various places that this James, the elder, was, was one who came to believe in Jesus Christ after the resurrection and became, became a follower of Christ and became an elder and leader in the Jerusalem church. And when the, 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 the persecution came because of the martyrdom of Stephen in chapter 8 of the book of Acts, when that event came and the church was scattered throughout all of the then known world and only a few remained in Jerusalem, he was the one that picked up his pen and wrote this letter that we have. And it's, it's called the, the letter that's to the scattered church, to the scattered uh, tribes of Israel. We believe that he, he wrote, uh, he was martyred for his faith in 62 AD, but uh, before he died, he, he wrote this little letter, probably around 49 AD, uh, before the Jerusalem Council of Acts 15. And um, there are similarities in this scripture to the Sermon on the Mount. And so we believe that uh, he was very influenced by Jesus in his earthly ministry. We also find much similarity to wisdom literature found in the Old Testament, especially the book of Proverbs. In fact, I would say that James is to the New Testament what the book of Proverbs is to the Old Testament. Now, sometimes we read the Bible and we, we uh, read the sections of our Bibles and the, the titles that are at the head of the sections. If you were looking at James right now in chapter 1, in James chapter 1, you'll notice that the section in the New International Version that heads the, the verse 2 and following, it's called Trials and Temptations. Now, the, the danger of doing that is, uh, first of all, we need to understand that's not in original autographs or in original manuscripts. Those titles are not found there. Only the text is found in the documents and the fragments that we have that compose the New Testament. And yet they're put there by Bible publishers and translators to help us, the readers, understand more about the big ideas of the text. And I think that's all well and good for a Bible publication company to do so, except when perhaps they get it wrong or they do something that I think could be misleading. And so the question that I'm posing this morning as we begin the study of James is, is this really the best title to be given to this section? In verse 2, trials and temptations. Is this really what this scripture is all about? And I would like to propose to you that maybe a better way of rendering a title for this section would be to call it something like getting wisdom. And so let's take a look at James chapter 1. And I'm just going to read verses 1 to 8 to us this morning. And if you would stand with me if you're able to. 
listen to God's word read to us this morning. James chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must, must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. May God bless his word to us. You may be seated. When Don Cousins was with us about a month ago, he said that the scriptures are given to us for three reasons. The Bible is given to us for three reasons. I think he was quoting Henry and Richard Blackaby when he said so. I'm not sure. He said, first of all, that the Bible is given to us so that we might know the character of God, that we might know God, that we might know who God is. That's something fundamental to why God gave us this book is that we might know him. What is God like? A.W. Tozer said that what comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And I want you to know that instinctively, intuitively, every one of us comes into this world and grows up with wrong, wrong concepts of God. So we, we need to be familiar with the Scripture so that we know God as God is, really, and as He's revealed in Scripture. Secondly, they say that the, the Scripture is given so that we might... <laughs> Know God's plans and purposes. In other words, that we might know right from wrong. God says, I've made you in my image and I want you to be reflective. I am in my character, so here's how you live. So we read the Bible so that we might know how to live. And then thirdly, he said that God's word is given to us so that we might know his will and way. And I would kind of paraphrase that by saying, that we might have wisdom, that we might grow in wisdom. God gave us his word. Now, when he was here, Don Cousins differentiated and, and he, uh, he differentiated between the, the second two purposes, the, the will and way of God. He, he used a golfing illustration. So this could be identifying with some of you. He said that knowing God's plans and purposes might be likened to staying in the fairway with your ball, staying out of the rough. But the third point of knowing God's wisdom, and, and, and that is, is, the, is the skill of knowing which club to use, how to use it, and how to get on the green faster. He pressed the matter. He pressed the matter, and he said that most Bible-believing churches, most Bible-teaching churches just teach how to live in the fairway. Okay? They just teach how to live in the fairway, how to stay out of the rough, knowing right from wrong, do your best. But they do not help followers of Christ live with wisdom and, and enjoy the life of God, the abundant life that Jesus has for us. But God did not send His Son and save us just so that we could have a Christian lifestyle, but that we might experience life. I think it's a good distinction. 
Our goal in golfing is not just to get our ball on the fairway and stay there and stay out of the rough. It's to get to the hole faster and in the least amount of strokes. And I think that we, as Christians, as evangelicals, often make the mistake of just be a good lifestyle Christian. Just stay out of the rough. I think sometimes children get the impression from their parents that really what they want from their kids is just don't embarrass me. Just stay out of the rough. Just stay on the fairway, will you? If it takes 12 strokes to get to the hole, fine. But that's not the goal of the Christian life. The goal of the Christian life is Christ and the life of Christ. I have come that you might have life abundant. I sometimes think that some people who, who play the zigzag golf or live the zigzag Christian life in the rough might be searching for more life sometimes in Christ. Would you take a moment and think about the book of Proverbs with me? And if you have, and you want to look in the Bible with me, there's a lot of similarity to this concept as it's found in the book of Proverbs. Right from the beginning, Solomon says, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, for attaining wisdom and discipline, for understanding words of insight. He's saying right up front, this whole collection of chapters and little sayings and so on is all about wisdom. Take a look at it for a moment. Chapter 1, verse 20. Wisdom calls out in the street. She raises her voice in the public squares. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries. In the gateways of the city, she makes her speech. Long, how long will you simple ones love your simple ways? How long will mockers delight in mockery and fools hate knowledge? Chapter 3. Chapter 3 and verse 13 says, blessed is the man who finds wisdom, the man who gains understanding, for she is more profitable than silver and yields better returns than gold. She is more precious than rubies. Nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand. In her left are riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant ways and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who embrace her. Those who lay hold of her will be blessed. Chapter 4 and verse 5. Get wisdom. Get understanding. Do not forget my words or swerve from them. Do not forsake wisdom and she will protect you. Love her and she will watch over you. Wisdom is supreme. Therefore, get wisdom. Though it costs all that you have, get understanding. Oh, this is an overstatement, Solomon. Is wisdom that important? Is it supreme? Is it more important than everything else in life? Wisdom? They use different styles of writing, but the message of Proverbs and the message of James are virtually one and the same. They both tell us that what is of most importance in our lives is gaining wisdom, which comes from God. And if you're going to learn deeper lessons from the book of James, you better start by getting wisdom. Wisdom is the receiver that helps you interpret the lessons of God. If you don't have wisdom, God's lessons will fly over your head like the wind on a prairie field. I mean, wisdom will escape you. It'll, it'll bypass you unless you have a receiver of wisdom in your heart to interpret the things of God. 
I think we could all agree that if someone were to follow us around this past year, that they perhaps would not conclude that getting God's wisdom, which leads to our maturity, has been supreme in our lives. The unfortunate condition in all of us is that we are weak, that we are wandering, that we are frail and fragile, that we are suspect to, uh, to all kinds of other lesser affections in our hearts, that we are pleasure-seeking, pain-avoiding creatures, that we do not have inherent wisdom, and that it must be learned like little children who do not have the sense to make good choices and must have many choices made for them by their parents, we also, we have a Heavenly Father that needs to make many choices for us. Do you believe that? That's fundamental if you're going to hear the wisdom of James. This idea does not sit well with a generation that is prides itself in being autonomous, self-subsisting beings for the most part who determine our own destiny and pursue our own dreams. This message of James is not popular. Let me read to you a quote from Norman Wiersba, a book I've been reading called Living the Sabbath. He puts it this way, We have almost come to see and believe that God and suffering are incompatible. And what we really have done is we have elevated our own interests and our own desires and fears and worries above an honest accounting of the depth and mystery of life and all of the limitations of humanity and human power. He goes on to say this, pain and suffering, could I put in brackets in the words of James, trials of many kinds. Pain and suffering should not be cast as problems that need to be explained or solved, eliminated simply because they represent an affront to the world that we choose or want to make for ourselves. Now, if you're not going through any kind of trial right now, you can receive that and say, yeah, that's a, that's a good statement. But if you're going through some stuff right now, it's a hard pill to swallow. Suffering and evil are two different things. I want to be clear about this. Suffering and evil are two different things. Not all suffering is rooted in evil, though. Even the scriptures bear this out so often. I was just thinking this morning, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 7, it says, Treat hardship as discipline. God is treating you like a son. Now, in that little verse, there's an incredible theology pact. Treat hardship as discipline. Hardship as discipline. Discipline, therefore, is not this random thing that just kind of circumstantially happened to you. This is now talking about discipline, the father that is disciplining his son or daughter so that they might share in his holiness and grow. Treat that as discipline, hardship. So obviously it's not evil, that kind of suffering, that kind of hardship. So as in the words of but we need to be careful that we do not put God and suffering in the same sentence as incompatible. If God were to put 
you in a hallway with two doors at the end of it. And one of the doors said wisdom. And in brackets underneath that wisdom, it said some suffering and some hardship and some pain. And on the other door, he put pleasure. Probably nine times out of ten, if we didn't think about it, we would instinctively open the door that says pleasure and not the door that says wisdom. And that's why James starts with wisdom as a thing that we ask of God because almost the entire life, our letter, is prescriptive as opposed to descriptive. Dozens of imperative commands in James. And it's all saying, do this, don't do that. And it requires wisdom to receive it and to choose it. Because nine times out of ten, we won't choose the way of wisdom. And so God needs to choose it for us. Can you accept that? God needs to choose the door open for us. Now, some of you may not like this sermon so far. Uh, we are seeking to understand what the Scriptures are teaching in, ter- in simple terms. Uh, I'm saying to you that the, the message of James begins this way. In, in, a, in a most simple logic sense, I can say it is saying this, that God, the God of, Bi- of the Bible, is omnipotent. He is all-powerful, and therefore... He can supply whatever He wants to give us. Whatever. Sky's the limit. Secondly, that God, the God of the Bible, is omniscient. He is all-knowing. And so He knows all about our needs better than we know ourselves. And thirdly, the same God of the Scripture who is omnipotent and omniscient is also all-loving and only good. Only good. No good thing does He withhold from us. And then he will give us, therefore, what he knows we need. Now, I have a statement here that I, I have written down in my manuscript and I have been debating even up until this morning whether I need to read it or not. Because I, I'm aware how it might land on some of you. I'm aware of how it might be misinterpreted. But if you put the three things that I just shared about God and what James is teaching together... Basically, you somehow have to conclude that we somehow need everything we get. That's, I, know it, I know that's hard to receive. I know, that's, I know that can be misinterpreted. But at some level, we somehow get everything we need. Now, that's difficult to, to accept in a culture where, which is so given to a me-centered, gratification-oriented life. I share this message knowing full well the harshness of life that some of you are experiencing. I try to stay in touch with you. I pray for you. I have not suffered like you, many of you. And I do not share it flippantly. I I don't want you to hear me and certainly not God saying anything flippantly or dispassionately. Life is hard. We said it a few weeks ago that life has meaning because it comes from God. And if life has meaning, then everything under life, which is suffering included, has meaning. It has meaning. If life has meaning from God, then the, the, the life that God has given you and all the suffering that it includes has meaning. It's true truth. And so James 
to get to the point here, James begins his letter by sort of indirectly confronting the biggest question that humanity faces. Why do we suffer and, and where's God? He really does that. And we must acknowledge at the outset that the scriptures contain a deep paradox here, an antinomy, a, a something that is against our logic sometimes. On the one hand, suffering is called blessed. Jesus in Matthew 5, 7, 11 says, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of manner of evil against you, falsely in account of me, but, but great is your reward in heaven. Blessed are you. He's saying pain, suffering, blessed are you. In this scripture, James is saying, count it all joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. So on the one hand, here's the paradox. On the one hand, we're, we're told that, that suffering... And difficulties is, is a blessed life. And on the other hand, of course, we're called to relieve sufferings. One of the rabbis said, if a person has not suffered, what could they possibly know? <laughs> the ancients talked about death this way, that in this paradoxical way that it is glorious for the Christian that, that through its portals we enter into the very presence of the living God who would not want death. Who does not want death to get to the presence of the living God? And yet it's called the last enemy to be destroyed in the Scriptures. It's all about life. It's a paradox. We see even in, on the table that's set before us, the table that reminds us of the cross of Christ, this crazy paradox that the Son of the living God, the pure and spotless Lamb of God, Jesus, who never sinned in His life in any way, should die a criminal's death on a cross. That's, that's horrific. And yet, it's glorious. For through that death, He purchased our salvation, gave us eternal life. It's a paradox. The question I see in this is, do we not see that same paradox in all suffering? Does not all suffering have two levels to respond at? Does not all suffering show paradox? And what does James teach about it? He says in verse 2, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. In other words, you might become wise. That's what James is saying. You can count it all joy because this is leading to wisdom. Now, a few observations about this scripture. First of all, notice that James says when you face trials of many kinds, not if you face them. I mean, you are either about to go into a trial, you're in a trial now, or you just left going through a trial. But it's all like that for all of us, isn't it? Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. But take courage, I've overcome the world. So it's not a if, it's a when you face trials of many kinds. Secondly, the word trials has this idea of testing and proving something. So when you go through a trial, there's something that's being tested. There's a proving happening. It's got a purpose. Thirdly, of many kinds is a word that means many colored, like a rainbow, varied, or, or the word could be diverse. So it could mean that you, you not getting your way 
could be a trial. And you going through something awful and much worse is also a trial. Many, it's many kinds of trials. He says, you know that the word here, gnosko, it means to understand because you've experienced something. You know from experience that, that your faith being tested is going to lead to perseverance and that's got to finish its work for you to grow and mature. You know that. Somehow, intuitively, you do know that. James is saying to the believers here. And then he says that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And that word is hupomone. It means literally to remain under. Hupomone. It means steadfast endurance. Patience during affliction. It means remain under that. For as long as God the Father in His wisdom has put you under whatever it is that you're going through, Perseverance is, I'm going to stay under it because God has it for me and is producing something of wisdom in me. It takes faith to believe that. It takes faith to stay under it. And then the word that you might be mature and complete, those words have this idea of being fully developed, a whole, entire, not lacking anything. It doesn't mean you're perfect. It means you're fully developed. You're a person walking with Christ Filled with the Spirit, a conduit through which the grace of God can flow and you can fulfill the purposes God has for your life. And with this goal in mind, with this wisdom goal in mind, James goes on in verse 5, without pause to say, If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to him. It literally means this. This is the way it, it could read. Let him ask from the giving God. That's what it says in the Greek text. Let him ask from the giving God. That's who God is. God is the giving God. If you lack wisdom, ask the giving God. He'll give you wisdom. And the word is the, in the imperative. This asking is in the imperative present tense. You just keep on asking. God is honored when you keep on going to Him and saying, God, I don't have wisdom. I'm foolish so often. I need your wisdom. Give me wisdom in this area of my life. God loves that. Keep on asking. God will keep on giving. Wisdom is like that descrambler that you might have to have enabling you to receive the signal Wisdom is that thing that helps you to receive the things that are happening to you with wisdom will, will then be understood. What is God doing? Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of the Heavenly Lights, 116, James says. But what is it all about? Well, you're not going to receive it if you don't have wisdom. And we have the record of one in Scripture who has perhaps suffered more than any apart from the Lord Jesus himself. And in the process, he wrestled with God to try and understand his circumstances. And in the middle of his pain, Job, in chapter 28, verse 12, Job cries out to God. Listen to what he says. In the middle of his trial, Job says this. But where can wisdom be found? 
Where does understanding dwell? Man does not comprehend its worth. It cannot be found in the, in the land of the living. The deep says, it's not in me. The sea says, it's not with me. It cannot be bought with the finest gold, nor can its price be weighed in silver. And then he goes on and on and talk about that. Verse 23 of chapter 28, he finally ends by saying, God understands the way to wisdom. And he alone knows where it dwells, for he views the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. And he has said to man, the fear of the Lord, that's wisdom. That's wisdom. You see, it, 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 it involves this radical reorientation of the way that we were born into this world thinking. A radical reorientation. Kevin talked about it a, a few weeks ago in, in terms of a vertical governing principle as opposed to a horizontal governing principle. Realignment of our perspective. And James goes on to say in verse 6 to say that, that when we ask for this wisdom, we must believe and not doubt because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. Don't think that you'll receive anything if you're like that. You're a double-minded man, unstable in everything that you're doing. And the word for doubt has this idea of being double-minded. It means to waver instead of having your mind made up that God is trustworthy. It means to open your mind not just to a couple of conflicting ideas, but several. It means that your, your mind and your life is like a cork, a wave on the ocean, just blown all by the winds. And if you're in that condition, James says, you should not have confidence that you can receive anything from God in that condition. Don't say, thus saith the Lord, if that's where your heart and mind is. You're just floating around on wave to wave. But you don't need to live that way. You can live a wise life. You can have a faith-filled life. As we pray together about discernment concerning the McGilvery property and the possibility of future building there, we talk about the future a pastoral ministry for youth, the director of student ministries, key ministry decisions that we're making. We may not have the answers to all of these things yet, and yet we, we have to, in our minds, know, without doubting, I have no doubts. I have no doubts at all. God's leading this church. God's shepherding the flock here. God's the Lord of the church. He's the pastor. He's the one showing us the way. And he will lead us. I spoke this past week to a woman who shared with me, I'd never heard this before, she shared with me something that she called a trust envelope. She had an envelope, I guess, and she, she, she I think, as, as I understood it, she just put in that envelope all kinds of things that she's got to trust God for. And it's really hard. So it's probably the big things of life. And I don't know why, but in my preparation for the sermon for this morning, I, I thought about that idea and I, I thought about the scripture we're studying in chapter 1, verse 5 of James. And I thought, I need to get an, I need to get a, an envelope too. But it's, I'm not going to call it a trust envelope. I'm going to call it a wisdom envelope. And so I have my wisdom envelope. And I've got three by five cards in there and I've put three things in there so far because I am just asking God for wisdom. Because I know I'm a fool sometimes. And I'm asking God for wisdom on three areas that I need Him to show up on. What would you put in your wisdom or trust envelope? What would you write on those three by five cards? What trial, what suffering, what hardship, 
What obstacle are you facing that is leading you toward a a life of maturity and wisdom? If you could just step out of the body for a moment and look at what that's doing, what God's doing there, what would you write on your card? Well, as we gather around the Lord's table, I want to say to you that the same confidence that I speak of and that James speaks of when we come to God not doubting but believing, the same confidence is ours because of what Jesus did. And so as we gather around this Lord's table, the Bible says that we should draw near with full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us of a guilty conscience. You see, whenever we come to the Lord, it's all about confidence that He gives us. We, we, God never wants his children to be on the slippery slope on the, the wave-tossed ocean. Uh, he's, he's asking us to be on solid ground. And this morning, if you know Jesus Christ, then you know God is in your corner. He takes pleasure in you. He loves you. And you might have messed up. You might not feel like you're walking closely with Him. But today I want to declare to you that you can have confidence before Holy God if you have Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. All it takes is you today to say, Jesus, I need you. God, I need you. I'm a sinner. I confess my sin. I ask you to come in right now and take over. Be my Savior. You can do that today now for the first time or you can redo it because you're not sure if it ever happened. And I'm telling you, God doesn't play games with us. He's a God of confidence. And if you come to him with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, he will meet you. He will meet you. Let me pray for you as we begin to share in the Lord's Supper. Father, we thank you for this time in your word and we we wait upon you now, O God, as we believe your Holy Spirit is present. And we believe your Holy Spirit is speaking to hearts through your word. We believe that uh, there's a lot of trials in this room. There's a lot of temptations. There's a lot of hardship and suffering. There's a lot of pain represented in this room, oh God. And it's hard for us sometimes to see what good could ever come from it. And Lord, we're asking you to give us wisdom the receptor kind of wisdom that can receive from you whatever you've sent to us. That perseverance, hupomone, to stand under it, even when it feels so awful and we want to run. Oh God, would you meet us? Would you meet each person calling out to you right now in the name of Jesus? And receive us now as we draw near to your table. Risen Son of God, we thank you for this privilege. In your name we pray. Amen. In your living of who 